A quick warning before we begin. This episode contains graphic descriptions of a dead body. In any great human drama, like an assassination or murder, there are always eyewitnesses and bystanders. People who aren't central to what happened, but who can shed light on the unfolding events. In the case of Lionel Crabb, one such bystander popped up on an old diving website, Kerry McKinnon, and he claimed to have had a walk-on part in the unfolding drama of Crabb. And so my producer, Sarah, and I want to meet him. It turns out he lives near Chichester, not far from Portsmouth. What's the name of that house there? That one is called Mallards and Magnolias, two houses. What's the name of his house oh, again? That's a very good question. It's called something. It's got a really weird name. Bingo. If our information is correct, this is the home of Kerry McKinnon, the bystander in the story of Lionel Crabb. Very sorry to turn up it's completely all right. unannounced like this. We're looking for Kerry McKinnon. You found him. Brilliant. We are um, making a podcast about Lionel Crabb, and we found your name on a very old uh, internet site. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Kerry McKinnon. He's early 70s, I reckon, suntanned, a beaming grin, and he looks like he's on holiday with his T-shirt and floral patterned shorts. So we tell him about our Lionel Crab quest. And he's fascinated because he does indeed have a story to tell. Quite a lot of people already, actually. And the next thing we know, we're sitting in his garden. It's a gloriously sunny afternoon. And Carrie couldn't be more friendly to two complete strangers who've just pitched up out of the blue. Can I get you a drink, please, Lord? Oh, wow. Um, well, I can offer you tea, coffee, um, wine. I can offer you. And once we've got our beers and Sarah's shoved a mic in his face, Carrie begins his story of a very strange day in the summer of 1957. We were up on the boat. That boat was called Tawny. He tells us how on that day, he and his family were having lunch on their pleasure boat, an 1890s wooden craft with oars and sails called Tawny. They were pottering around Chichester Harbour, which is not really a harbour, says Carey, more a huge natural inlet from the sea, about eight miles along the coast from Portsmouth. I would have been seven years old at the time, and we were anchored in, in the boat. I had a big cockpit, and we were having lunch. This was how his family often spent their weekends, especially when the weather was good. We used to love just anchoring, watching people make mistakes. Cocking up, bashing into one another, breaking things, shouting, yelling, divorces in the making, you know, the whole nine yards. And the McKinnons too were forever having accidents, especially as their boat was hard to steer. She leaked like a sieve, she handled like a pig, I mean, hopeless. Um, crashes and things, but huge, huge character. Um, everyone used to love coming on, but it was a party boat, it was a family boat, just great fun and very comfortable. So they're having their lunch, and they suddenly hear a strange noise in the distance. And somebody noticed a helicopter off to one side by about a quarter of a mile, something like that, quite close. Now we see rescue helicopters all the time. Um, but a helicopter hovering over what's called Pilsey Sands, 
which was about a quarter of a mile to the north of us, which in those days was very unusual. And then they notice a fishing trawler, and then a police boat. And we thought, what on going on over there? And there was a lot of activity, and we didn't know what had happened. It was so unlike most weekends, when the place was blissfully quiet, and the only noise was the seagulls and the gently lapping water. Now, obviously, they were fishing something out of the water. At that stage, we had no idea what it was. By now, the whole McKinnon family had got up from the lunch table and were on deck, craning their necks, trying to work out what on earth was taking place. There was something clearly going on and attracting the interest of the emergency services. So they all started to guess. We were all sort of earwigging and watching, trying to work out what it was, and all sorts of theories as to what it might be, um, which varied from things like an unexploded bomb, um, but why would you have a helicopter you know, anywhere near an unexploded bomb? Um, and possibly um, a corpse, but we had no idea. It was only later that day, once the press had got wind of the story, that Carey and his family learned what had happened. We knew that night that a headless frogman had been discovered, so obviously the discussion around the table, around the, in the boat, uh, was all about that. A headless frogman. A diver, that is. And he's in the middle of telling this story when he pauses for a moment, says he's got something to show us. And so he goes inside, rummages around, and comes back with some sort of logbook. This is the visitor's book from the boat, which friends used to come down and sign off. And he flicks through, trying to find the right date for 1957. And there's the entry of that day. That's my sister. 8th to the 10th of June, they were down on the boat in 1957. Narrow squeaks and headless frogmen with their flippers flying backwards, helicopters flying upwards and tawny running forwards. And although it all sounds a bit nonsensical, narrow squeaks and flippers flying backwards, what his sisters recorded is the discovery of a headless diver. You couldn't dream in a million years that whatever it is that just happened, happened. That headless frogman, was it the corpse of Lionel Crabb? I'm Giles Milton, and from something else than Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets. Episode 6, Fisherman John's Catch of the Day. In the very first episode of this podcast, we heard from Rob Evans, the Guardian's investigative reporter, the one with the infectious belly laugh. <laughs> He told us to be creative when looking for information about the Lionel Crab case. Search in unlikely places. These were his words, remember. The main avenue here is blocked, but that's not the end of the story because there's always information out there somewhere. It's just a way of finding it. So I take Robert his word, check all sorts of libraries and archives. And one of the places I contact is the local archives in Chichester, on the off chance they've got something about Lionel Crabbe. 
And to my amazement, they do. A police case file that never got transferred to the National Archives. So Sarah and I head to West Sussex County Archives. It's a nondescript brick building near the centre of town. And we register, and we're then led upstairs to a reading room lined with books and files. <laughs> and a few minutes later, we meet the archivist, who's strangely guarded about that police file. He actually refuses to be recorded, to talk on the record about its contents. But he leaves us alone in the room, Sarah and I, and there's no one else here. And I can't help feeling we're the first people to see this file in years. And it's actually marked Access Restricted Police Records, W slash C6 slash 2. I'm not even sure if we're meant to be looking at this. But here we go, on the back it says Commander Crab, 1956. It's a green file stuffed with letters, memos, reports, some stamped secret in red ink. It's full of a, absolutely tons of information. I'm just flicking through now. This is, this is unbelievable. This is really, really, this is the gold dust you're hoping to find always in archives. We've got letters here from people who were there when the corpse was pulled from the water. We've got police statements. We've got uh, documents from the mortuary. There's photographs, particularly grisly ones. Um, handwritten letters as well. There's handwritten letters. And not just letters. Towards the end of the file, there's the complete autopsy report on that rotting corpse, along with witness statements and photos. So with the help of these reports and documents, I'm going to reconstruct the day on which a corpse was pulled from Chichester Harbour. The 9th of June, 1957. The day on which Carey McKinnon and his family were out pleasure boating. Remember, 14 months have passed since Lionel Crabbe went missing. And Chichester Harbour, yes, it's a lovely spot and full of boats but it's also full of working fishing trawlers. Dirty, oily and noisy. One of these trawlers, it's called the Red Goose, and there are three fishermen aboard. And if they'd have looked southwards towards the sea, they'd have spotted a leisure boat, tawny, with Kerry McKinnon and his family relaxing on board, enjoying their lunch. One of those fishermen, John Randall, something deeply unsettling is about to happen to him. So unsettling that he'll end up giving a statement to the local coroner and an interview with the BBC. Well, we were going down yesterday morning for a day's fishing and uh, going down the harbour towards the, uh, Chichester Harbour and we arrived at the Princeton Channel. It was a warm and, uh, day but overcast and John Randall and his two mates had just started trawling for fish. But then, something caught John's eye. When we slowed up the engine, um, I noticed this object floating in the water. John revved the engines, circled it several times. He was wary at first, thought it might be an old German mine. They still surfaced every now and then, even though the war had ended 12 years earlier. But it wasn't a mine. A tractor tire, perhaps? 
John steered closer to the object, then reached for it with his boat hook. It appeared to be um, rubber of some description, and um, upon closer examination, I could see quite positively it was the body of a frogman in blue rubber frogman's complete outfit. This was a horrific catch and a gruesome discovery. Randall had just pulled in a rotting human corpse, minus its head and hands. It stank, really stank, so they towed it behind the trawler. And when they reached Pilsey Island, a windswept mudflat inside Chichester Harbour, they used their ship's radio to report their grim discovery to the emergency services. That call from John Randall, it caused quite a stir. A corpse in Chichester Harbour. So a rescue boat was launched, sent to Pilsey Island, with a local policeman named Ronald Williams on board. And here in the archives, I found his statement to the coroner. It's read by an actor. On the beach, I saw some human remains. The head and upper portion of the body and the arms were missing. Officialdom swung into action with unusual speed, especially for sleepy Chichester. The corpse was rushed to the local mortuary and recorded by police photographer Malcolm Barrett. We voiced him up as well. The remains were laid out on the mortuary slab. All garments had been removed. The man was about five feet, two inches tall. He had hammered toes and his pubic hair was ginger. I took five photographs of the remains. Chichester's a small place, remember, and news of the discovery was soon doing the rounds. Rumours were spreading. People said it must be Lionel Crabbe. And it wasn't long before journalists and photographers were flocking to the mortuary. Among those journalists was the locally-based reporter Peter Marshall, who we last heard from in episode four. He was the one who covered the arrival of Khrushchev and Bulganin and discovered the missing page from the Sallyport Hotel register. And now, the story of Lionel Crabb had suddenly been given a whole new lease of life by the discovery of a corpse. He did his best to get information. Talking to the police. Trying to take photographs. Talking to people, finding out, you know, just what was going on. Waiting for the post-mortem report to be issued and then the various identification attempts. Who was helping to identify the corpse? Family? Friends? Marshall and his fellow reporters found it hard to get any information about the investigation, either locally or from London not even the Admiralty, responsible for all naval matters. They weren't releasing any confirmation from the Admiralty or the Home Office or anywhere else that might have helped confirm things. They were keeping very strong about the whole thing. And Peter Marshall, he had just one question he wanted answering. Were these the remains of Lionel Crabbe? You've got to remember that this was the 1950s, long before DNA profiling. 
The only sure way to identify a corpse back then was through the teeth or the fingerprints. If there was foul play, like murder, the best way to keep the corpse's identity a secret was to remove the head and hands. And in this case, of course, both the head and hands were missing. The chief pathologist in Chichester was Dr Donald Plimsoll King. I found an old photo of him in the police file here in the archives, and he looks the very picture of respectability. Trilby hat, three-piece suit, cufflinks and tie. Establishment. Trustworthy. He was the one who examined the corpse, then wrote up his report. Above the waist, parts of the body, including the skull, had disappeared. The joint of the big toe was enlarged and disjointed. But it was impossible to definitively identify such a decomposed corpse. The only certainty was this. It had been in the sea for a very long time. The body had been in the water for at least six months and could well have been in the water for at least 14 months. This was suspiciously precise. 14 months took the clock back to April 1956, the very month when Lionel Crabbe went missing. Dr Plimsoll King, he couldn't be sure it was Lionel Crabbe, but he thought it was likely to be Crabbe. So that's what he told the coroner, whose task was to close the case. And so, a little over two weeks later, the coroner gave his official verdict. Looking at the evidence in this case, I am quite satisfied that the remains found in Chichester Harbour were those of Commander Crabbe. So he declared the corpse to be Lionel Crabbe, issued an official death certificate and recorded an open verdict on the cause of death. And that might have been that. But there were many unanswered questions, like why was the inquest held behind closed doors, with no press, no public, no questions, and carried out with unusual speed? And why was Lionel Crabbe's diving buddy, Frankie Franklin, not called to the inquest? He, after all, had been the last person to see Crabbe alive. And why not Sidney Knowles, Crabbe's best mate? He'd frequently seen Crabbe with no clothes on, knew his battle wounds, his scars. So while this was officially Crabbe's corpse, one tantalising question remained. Was the coroner right when he declared the body to be that of Lionel Crabbe? This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. 
Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. That police file I found in West Sussex archives, it's packed with information, hundreds of pages. There's reports, interviews, witness statements, and files within files. There's a green file here. This is photographs, and I have a horrible uh, suspicion of what's going to be inside. And this, oh my God, these are the original close-ups of the decomposed corpse on the mortuary slab. It's really, really difficult to look at, actually. The mortuary slab is a, is a sort of um, shiny, sort of almost porcelain-y type slab with a raised uh, lip on it. Um, it's semicircular at one end, uh, and this corpse is lying on it. You can see the private parts um, extremely visibly. Uh, and then what's rather revolting actually at the top is it just disintegrates into a mass of flesh and bones. There seems to be, seems to be a leg, no, some sort of arm bone. There's uh, some ribs there. It's really quite difficult to look at actually. They show absolutely everything in extraordinary detail. I mean, horrific detail. And um, I'm glad I ate my lunch a few hours ago. We need to take some photos of these photos to yeah, give to yeah. the forensic pathologist. Oh yes, very good idea. I'm afraid they're going to be on your phone, it's pretty gross. So we take photos because we're going to show them to our forensic pathologist, Dr Richard Shepherd, the one who did the Princess Diana inquiry. We're hoping he'll be able to tell us once and for all if this is Lionel Crabbe. This autopsy report it reveals something that takes me by surprise, something unknown to all the journalists who'd gathered outside the mortuary. You see, the pathologist was not alone in examining the body. He had a key witness to help him. And that witness, it was Mrs Margaret Crabbe, ex-wife of Lionel. And I'm holding her statement in my hands. The pathologist wants a description of Crabbe. So here it is. My husband was a short man, about five foot four, five foot five. He was a stocky build. He had rather strong, muscular legs, which were very straight. He had dark brown hair, but all other hair on his body was ginger. Remember, this is all happening inside the mortuary, next to the corpse. And poor Margaret is facing the most unpleasant task of her life, helping the pathologist to identify the mass of rotting flesh on the slab. His feet were small. I believe he took a size six shoe. The big toes may have turned outwards, but I'd not be sure that this was so. The pathologist wanted more, intimate stuff. Asked about her husband's penis, which was the best preserved part of the corpse. Circumcised or not circumcised? And suddenly Margaret became all evasive. 
I cannot be sure whether my husband had been circumcised or not. The sexual relations were not normal, and our marriage was of short duration. And she added, by way of explanation, It was because of my husband's abnormal sexual behaviour that I divorced him. Which we already knew, because we heard this from Margaret in episode three. That day in the mortuary, it was a moment of extreme stress for Margaret, and horror, and revulsion. The gruesome sight of the corpse was bad enough, but it brought back nightmarish memories from the past. The stench was so bad that Margaret could only stand being in the room for 30 seconds, just enough time for the pathologist to show her the corpse's strangely misshapen feet. But it was no good. I cannot identify the feet as those of my former husband. This does not mean that I'm of the opinion they are not. It's just impossible for me to say that they do not look like them at all. But this may well be due to the present condition of the flesh. And what she's saying, I mean, I can understand that she's stressed and upset, but I can't help wondering if she's telling the truth about those strangely misshapen feet and about the corpse itself. Because what she said to the pathologist, it was completely at odds with what she told her close friends. You see, crab expert John Bevan, the one with his study in a swimming pool, the late husband of Anne Bevan, he spoke to those close friends. And Margaret had told them, quite categorically, that the corpse was not Lionel Crab. This police file we found, there's one familiar name that keeps cropping up. Sidney Knowles, Lionel Crabbe's best mate. We last met Knowles in episode three, when he dramatically shopped Crabbe to MI5, informed the security services about Crabbe's plan to defect to the Soviet Union. And then it all went silent. But now, just a few hours after the corpse was pulled from Chichester Harbour, Knowles reappears in our story, says he was summoned to his local police station in Preston, in the north of England. All he wanted to know was, could I identify a body if it was placed before me? And I said, whose body were you referring to? He said, Commander Crabbe. I said, certainly I could. And Knowles says he told the police about Crabbe's distinctive scars, his battle scars and all that. An inverted Y behind the left knee there. And... Uh, there was another on the left thigh, a seawater boil that leaves about a shilling-sized scar. This took about four hours I was there, and they let me go. Before they let me go, they said, there's a number of uh, reporters outside. We want you to say nothing. Mm -hmm. I repeat. Now, you'd have thought the police would have taken Noel straight to the mortuary to identify the corpse, but they didn't. And I soon discover why in one of the documents Sarah and I find in the West Sussex archives. This is from Preston Borough Police. And it seems to be um, casting doubt on Sidney James Knowles. It says here, and it's underlined in bold, Sidney James Knowles relishes publicity and is obviously in regular contact with members of the press. It seems that the, the police really don't trust Sidney uh, Knowles as a witness. This is signed by 
a um, J. Richardson chief constable, and he doesn't clearly doesn't like Knowles. The police have questioned Knowles and cross-questioned him and checked his stories against what he's told the press. And they don't trust him at all. Because Knowles, he loves the publicity, loves chatting with reporters, spinning a good story and getting paid a few pounds each time. And that story, it keeps changing. First, he told reporters he'd definitely be able to identify the corpse if only they'd let him see it. Then, just a few days later, he said exactly the opposite. He told other journalists that he did see the corpse and added that it was still in its wetsuit. And then, no doubt earning himself a few more pounds, Knowles changed his story once again. According to John Bevan, he claimed the chief inspector of police put pressure on him, told him to say it was the body of Lionel Crabb. It's quite a story, like all of Knowles' stories, but they never add up. They don't add up at all. Take his claim to have seen the corpse in its wetsuit. It's impossible, literally impossible, because the wetsuit was removed from the corpse within hours of it being pulled from the sea, removed while Sidney Knowles was still in Preston. The more Knowles spoke to the press and the more the press lapped up his stories, the crazier those stories became. And I, and I tapped him about it. He even and told he reporters that, that MI5 had sent a Royal Navy Marine into the water on the morning of Crab's dive with instructions to stop Crab defecting. Instructed to stop him or to kill him. And Knowles, as ever, added an extra twist. And frankly, I think they killed each other. I do. I think they killed each other. It's crazy stuff. And I'm left thinking, if Knowles made up stories about the corpse, it's hard to believe anything that he said. So blatant pro-Russian that I thought something was going to happen. Crab's love of Stalin. It sounded to me and looked like a communist cell. Crab's decision to defect. He's gone too far. I think he's going to join the Russian Navy now. He's going to go to Russia. I don't like this. And all those other contradictory stories. I literally wrote a letter addressed to ML5. It's sad but true that Sidney Knowles was simply one more fantasist, giving himself a starring role in the mysterious disappearance of Lionel Crabbe. And I was hurting inside, I was really hurting because I was the man who I loved, I was putting him away. Excuse me, my eyes are full of tears. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold? 
and breathe. You get into ice water, and instead of like freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. When we last met Dr. Richard Shepard, Britain's leading forensic pathologist, he told us about his work on the Princess Diana case. And now Sarah and I once again need his help in identifying that corpse pulled from Chichester Harbour. Because we've now got the autopsy report, and we've got the photos, and we need to know for sure if it's the body of Lionel Crabbe. Richard Shepard says he'll guide us through the original autopsy, tell us how it would have happened, and look for mistakes that the pathologist, Dr Plimsoll King, might have made. So Donald Plimsoll King performs the examination as the local pathologist. He would then have probably been the only pathologist in the hospital. You know, pathology as a subject was really very much in its infancy. Royal College of Pathologists didn't exist, specialist examinations didn't exist. I show Dr Shepherd the pathologist's report and the photos of the corpse and I can see a half-smile on his face. I can smell this photograph. Mm. <laughs> you can't. I can, mm. and it's, it's not a good smell. But, it, you know, it, the smell is awful. The sight is awful. Bad sewage smell combined with rotting meat and one or two other unpleasant features. My guess is you would have smelt this body as you walked down the corridor, as you went to the door of the mortuary space. <laughs> It would have really completely filled that space. And then when you walked into the mortuary room itself. It would have been overpowering. This was full face, full nasal exposure to a really, really unpleasant smell. So the first thing the pathologist said he did was remove the wetsuit. But how? I would anticipate they would cut it off, rather than just because it is practically incredibly difficult to remove something like a wetsuit from a decomposing body. But, I mean, there was more than just the wetsuit, wasn't there? There were other items of clothing that I think that, that there was underwear, there was a vest, uh, and there may have been other things. So all of these things. Now, that's when you're starting to form the database for who this person was. But Dr Shepherd says identifying this corpse is not going to be easy because there's so much that's missing. Fingerprints would have been good, not present. Teeth, they would have been good, not present. And so you have to go on really very soft identifying features. Because the two most important features, the head and the hands, are both missing which is surely suspicious. Dr Shepard studies the photo intently, searching for clues. The legs and the pelvic areas are well-preserved, or moderately well-preserved. The upper body is less well-seen, but clearly shows evidence of predation by uh, aquatic animals. Would have been shrimps and things like that. They are voracious little buggers. So. 
we should not be surprised that the head and the hands have gone because they're the natural places to get eaten. Absolutely. The, the, the absence of the head and the hands really doesn't imply that they have been deliberately removed, especially after 14 months. I asked Dr Shepherd why the leg bone, the femur, has been cut out of the corpse. And he tells me this is because it can be used to determine the height of the corpse. About five foot two. So that's where we get to it. Even though there's no head, you can say the long bones suggest that. Which pretty much fits with what we know about Crab's height. He was short, not much over five foot. Shepherd tells me the toes also hold clues. The big toe is distorted to the outside towards the other toes. This is not uncommon at all, but it might be useful in identification. Useful because several of Crab's diving friends said he had strange toes just like this corpse. Another key factor is the body fat and the change in that fat. The body also shows a change that's called adipocere. Now, adipocere is an, a form of decomposition that occurs in bodies that are wet. But when it's contained in this way in a rubber suit, this change occurs in the fat. It becomes like soap. Adipocere, a word I'd never heard before. But what Dr Shepard's saying, it's easy to explain. The body fat becomes like old soap and can be used to estimate how long it's been in the water. Dr Plimsoll King reckoned 14 months and concluded the person had drowned in April 1956, the very month Lionel Crabb undertook his dive. And Shepard, what does he think? This body has been in the water for months. It's 14 months. It, it fits with a long-term immersion in water. He points to a few other clues. He identified the pubic hair, I think, as being ginger. And Crab's pubic hair was ginger. Well, that's quite useful. Exposure to seawater, I don't think it would affect the colour of the hair. But will he ever be able to say he is 100% certain that this is the body of, you know, Lionel Crabbe? No, nobody could before DNA. Mm. You know, and even then, to be honest, we never say we're 100% certain. We say, you know, there's a one in 74 billion chance that it's not him. Mm. But that's not quite, that's not quite, quite, quite the 100%. And he tells me one more thing. It's never the pathologist who makes the final decision about the corpse. It's the coroner. The coroner decides who the person is based on the evidence, and that decision is taken on the balance of probabilities. It's not beyond reasonable doubt, so if there's reasonable belief based on the evidence presented to him, he will say, I accept that this is the body of X. And as Dr Shepard makes clear, with this particular corpse, it has the right diving suit, the right height, the right coloured pubic hair, a scar on the left knee, outward turning toes, and body fat consistent with being in the water for 14 months. They really had to go the extra mile to show they had done their very best to prove it was or was not Buster Crab. And the original coroner got it right. It's 99.9% .9 certain to be Lionel Crab.
But three questions still need answering. What was Lionel Crabb doing on that final dive? How did he die? And how the hell did his body end up in Chichester Harbour, more than eight miles along the coast from Portsmouth? Next time on Ministry of Secrets, the rumour is this dive under Khrushchev's vessel was actually a joint MI6 CIA operation. Yeah, there could well have been pressure from the Americans who couldn't care less about state visit. If the CIA wanted this done, then MI6 might have said, OK, let's put something together. Want the full story? Unlock all episodes of Cover Up Ministry of Secrets ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge. All episodes, all at once. Plus, you'll unlock brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes, all at once, all ad-free. Just click subscribe on the top of the cover-up Ministry of Secrets show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you listen. Find out more about The Binge and other podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com forward slash podcasts. Cover Up Season 1 Ministry of Secrets is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is the story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. With thanks to actors Ginny Fiol, Peter Temple and Dominic Frisby and Tuning Fork Productions. <laughs>